by the way, when I say help, I am not referring to partners helping. Partners do not help. This is one of my bugbears. Partners don't get to help because it's not your job to do the things. If you're in a partnership having children, I strongly believe that it is your shared responsibility. So neither of you actually help the other one because that would kind of imply that it was one of your job to start with, which we definitely see a lot. Anytime someone says, oh, they've helped me out with the housework or they've helped me out with the childcare. If that's your partner, that's not helping out. That's their job. Do you struggle with parenting guilt? Whether it's guilt from not being at work enough so you can look after the kids or spending too much time at work away from the family. Or perhaps you're currently not a parent and you struggle with the ways in which your colleagues are dealing with working and parenting. Do you also struggle to escape from the traditional gender roles that you have been brought up with or that society still seems to expect from us? And do you sometimes suspect that you're your own worst enemy when it comes to carrying the emotional load for the family? Whatever your age, gender or sexuality, balancing life, home and family is a challenge. Whatever we do, however hard we try, sometimes it feels like we just can't win. This week on the podcast, we're thinking about how to ditch the guilt around working parents, whether you are one or work with one. Parenting is a thorny subject and one I've tended to shy away from addressing directly so far on You Are Not a Frog. But bitter experience tells me that things are still far from equal when it comes to working parents, with one partner often carrying a disproportionately bigger emotional load than the other. And also many of our listeners will be parenting on their own, either through choice or through unexpected circumstances. So on this episode, we're joined by You Are Not A Frog regular and leadership coach Karina Gordon-Barnes. We discuss our unhealthy thought patterns and behaviours when it comes to working, parenting and co-parenting. And think about some of the ways in which we need to get out of our own way and ask for help that we need and get more team around us, not just at work, but at home, to offer support and assist us with things we know are not in our own zone of genius. Now, since we recorded this podcast episode, Karina and Sam have had their third child, a little girl, so very many congratulations to them. Parenting is something that affects us all. Even if you don't have kids yourself, you'll either have them in the future or be working with people who do. So listen to this episode to find out why we need to ditch the guilt associated with working and parenting. How to approach the delegation of tasks at home in the same way as tasks at work. And discover how to recognise when we are being our own worst enemy, taking on too much of the emotional load. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, podcast for doctors and busy professionals in healthcare and other high-stress jobs who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, speaker and specialist in resilience at work. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us have found that exhaustion and stress are slowly becoming the norm. But you are not a frog. You don't have to choose between burning out or getting out. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? 
Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. It's really good to have with me back on the podcast again, Karina Gordon-Barnes. Hi, Karina. Hello. It's like a second home for me. (laughs) We always love it when you're here, Karina. For listeners who haven't yet met Karina. Karina is a certified coach. She's a career and leadership coach, in fact, and she specializes in tricky colleague relationships, in confidence and that difficult, should I stay or should I go dilemma? In fact, we talked about that on a previous podcast, haven't we? That was a popular one. Yeah. Yeah. A a lot of people are in that position. Yeah. Loads and loads of people and not just in medicine, sort of throughout well throughout the world actually they're calling it the great resignation after covid yeah yeah people are reassessing i think what's important what priorities are there so karina is also one of our shapes trainers and karina you've been doing a lot of work recently around working parents and how to balance life as a working parent and coaching people who are well, new parents or uh, been parents for a while and, and maybe struggling with work and parenting. So we thought it'd be really good to have a chat about this because lots and lots of listeners are parenting as well as working. And I guess even if you aren't parenting right now, uh, you might have grown up kids, you might not have any kids, but you certainly work with people who do have childcare responsibilities. And that can be really tricky, I think, for for both parties, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the One of the key things is that everyone, I think, everyone who is a working person also has other life going on. So everything that I'll I'll share today, I imagine, about being a working parent actually also applies to being a working daughter or son. You know, we we have sometimes responsibilities to our parents or if if they're unwell or needing some care or we have hobbies or we have side hustles or side projects that we're working on. So no one really is just working within a vacuum. So I think everyone would do well to consider themselves and their colleagues to be working some things, even if not working parents. Yeah, totally. And I think maybe it would be good to get full disclosure out at the beginning. So I have three children who are currently 17. How old's the other one? 15 and just 12. And you? So I also have three children, slightly different. So our our first son was um, extremely premature. He came just before 23 weeks and he died during labour. So that's our first son, Alfie. We have a son who is 21 months, so toddling around, being very gorgeous. And I'm currently 30 weeks pregnant with our daughter, who will be our final, our third and final child. Oh, so hugely exciting. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Most of my, my friends' kids are now sort of secondary school age, so I need more babies to cuddle, Karina. <laughs> when you missed out on cuddling Toby because of the pandemic, hopefully you won't miss out on cuddling this little, this little one. And we make really chunky babies we make chunky chubby babies <laughs> they're very they're very cuddleable brilliant brilliant okay so we both know what it's like to be a working parent 
Yeah. So I think that's uh, firstly good to get that out there. So when people get referred to you for coaching or come to you for coaching, Karina, what what do they seem to be struggling? What what commonly are they struggling with? So a common issue is a lack of confidence, not for everybody at all, but for some people having been been out of the workplace for maybe nine months, a year even, there'll be a lack of confidence, a, a kind of a knock to the confidence, just because the the world of work has has moved on 12 months, maybe within the time they were last at work. They're having to kind of, you know, all those things you just do on default. I know for me, when I came back for, uh, after Matt leave, having Toby, uh, our toddler now, it's like, how do I, <laughs> how do I do my website update again? How do I, how do I do this? You just, the things that are so just everyday commonplace that you do, you would do in your sleep, you would do without even thinking about them. Just got to remember, how do you do them? And of course, for doctors, you know, there are some hopefully many, many, many skills which are just like riding a bike. You're going to, you know, remember just completely. Others, you'll you'll forget quite how you did them that easily before. And things could have changed. So you could be, you might be a doctor coming back to a hospital where they've changed some massive system or some massive process. And you've actually got to learn afresh how to do something. You may come back to very different colleagues. The people that you worked with before may have left. You may have new members of staff come in. For some people that I work with, their maternity replacement or their their parental leave replacement person, there's a a kind of strange dynamic with that person. Maybe that person has, has stayed on in a different role and there's a bit of competitiveness over, hang on, who owns this project or who, or, or how do I now interact with this colleague? So a lot of things will have changed probably since someone has been on, on parental leave. And that can be, that can be hard. And a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome. So coming back in and feeling like, hang on, am I meant to be in this role still? I don't feel confident enough that it's just all ticking over nicely. And that imposter syndrome can kick in and, and, and be really hard. Also, someone coming back from parental leave can be incredibly sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. So they can be not as clear headed as they were before. Things could take longer just because of that mental fog of, of not having as much sleep. Physically, there may still be ramifications of having given birth, of if someone is, is breastfeeding, then that could have a physical impact. So certainly working with people who are still wanting to, to breastfeed, maybe maybe will be wanting to pump at work, for example, and, and, the, and the logistics of that. So yeah, so many. I hope that's given a, a little oh. taste of a few of them. Yeah. And, and you haven't even mentioned actually the fact that often you come back and, and you often come back to a part-time role, whereas before you may have yes. been full-time, suddenly you come back to a part-time role, which in some workplaces can wrongly be seen as a lesser thing. That the yes. less than full-time roles you get a lot of, I guess, well, implied or, or maybe actually overt criticism from other people who aren't in the less than full-time roles, who see themselves as committed and you as not committed, which I always felt is really, really unfair. And also, I think part of the confidence thing is when you have kids, you've suddenly gone from being someone who's pretty competent in their work to someone <laughs> who hasn't got a flooping clue about what you're doing and you're just making it up as you go along and I, I remember it being the first time I I ever really really struggled with thinking oh, I really don't know what I'm doing here so it, it's quite a good level isn't it having kids well it is especially if you have been maybe you've been sailing through your schooling your university your profession you've been very good at it and you've known how to be good at it there's been there have been objectives there have been exams that you can pass it's all been 
if you read this book or you do this training or you yeah, pass this particular milestone, you're being proven to be good at your job. But but where do we get the validation that we're we're, we're good at being parents? Because there is no there is no uh, rule book, there is no exam to pass. It's just us with our with our child or with our children going, yeah, am I doing okay here? And that comparison thing can be so so common that people are comparing themselves with other parents and finding themselves lacking. That can happen a lot as well. Plus the fact your kids very very rarely give you glowing feedback it has to be said <laughs> you probably get lots of lovely cuddles and kisses from toby but <laughs> i mean i do he's he's very affirmative but yeah you don't get that same level of 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 surety that you're doing a good job do you you, you have to self-reference in in ways that maybe at work you reference from others you reference from appraisals you reference from what colleagues are saying with your child you do you do have to self-reference more for am i doing Am I doing a job that I feel I feel proud of? Yeah. And and then of course, you know, they're a, a completely separate person with all their foibles and amazing bits. And you have no control really, particularly yeah. when they start going to school and you don't have any control of their friendships. And then whenever anything bad happens to them, you feel dreadful like it's your fault, or if they're not as good at this as someone else, you think, Oh, what have I done? And oh my goodness, it's it's a complete minefield, isn't it? Yeah, and another another factor as well is the fact that days can can be less elastic. So when when you don't have children, there can be this feeling that well, I'll, I'll catch up later. You know, there'll be a, there'll be a time in my day where I can catch up with the work I didn't get done in in the day, let's say, or I can just kind of stretch my day a little bit, have meetings a little bit later. Or if you are going to pick up a child from childcare, then you don't have that same elasticity, you don't have that same flexibility, and that can be very very hard. Mm. And I think. You know, coming from where I'm coming out, I've not had to change a nappy for for a good 10 years, which is very nice. And I'm at the point where I can, you know, go out in the evening and leave my older children babysitting for my younger children. So I have quite a lot more freedom. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's the it's the emotional load of parenting. I think when the children are younger, you have got that deadline and that lack of elasticity in your day which is really really hard and I I have never felt so stressed as when I've been on call with a deadline for a childminder Mm. with extra patients to see and I'm sure there's lots of people can you know absolutely identify with that when you've got a deadline to pick your child up you just cannot leave them waiting and then you know the amount of, of 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 GPs that I know that go and get their kids and have had to take them on visits with them yes. because they just have no, no other options. So there is that, that lack of um, elasticity there's, and then there's a lack of recuperation and rest. So yes. whereas when you don't have dependence, you can spend your, your time off doing what you want to do and resting in the way that you want to do by and large. But yes. as soon as you have to look after people, you don't really. And it's sometimes, I remember when they were really tiny, thinking even getting an hour free to do what I wanted to do in a week was was really amazing. And I look back now and think, actually, why on earth did I feel like that? Because I definitely had more time than I could have done. So maybe that's something we need to talk about in a second. Mm. Well, that is often a topic that people, when clients come to me for that one-to-one coaching, you know, kind of during or after mat leave, the, 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 one of their objectives will be, that they will set for themselves is how do I get more me time? And often, often the me time is, is actually very not selfish. It's about becoming healthier, for example, or exercising more. 
so as to be a better parent or a better worker. So there's this, you know, altruism even running through the me time aspect. I think let, let's start with that me time because I look back and think, why on earth didn't I? I, I had a little bit of extra childcare, so I used to have two hours on one morning a week where that was that was my me time and I absolutely you know that was the highlight of my week quite frankly I really needed that time off never seemed long enough but actually I'm very fortunate that I do have a partner who we we co-parents so I have that extra help and I know a lot of people don't have that luxury but we could have divided and conquered and given each other much more time off but I do remember guilt being a large part of of my existence I must say I have managed to ditch the guilt now <laughs> I'm pretty good at not feel guilty but but when the when the children were small I really really felt bad if if I either went away for a night with my friends or even took an afternoon off or did something without them because I felt I was dumping the children or, or leaving them with whoever mm-hmm. and I'm looking back and thinking that's ridiculous but it's really common isn't it yeah, and actually a really good thing to remember is that is that people in your life, whether it's family, friends, often love to spend time with your children. And it's a treat for them to have a few hours with them. So it's not, you know, they're not doing it as a chore. They're not doing it as, oh, okay, I better look after your child for you. It's like, oh, yeah, I get to have grandchild time or, or niece or nephew time. So I think that can help with the guilt to, to feel like actually you've, you've brought this child into the world or you've, you know, you're, you're raising this child who is not just for you, is for the community, is for lots of people to to enjoy and enjoy spending time with and and actually sharing them around a little bit can can help and i know i certainly know that for for us after toby was born how how grateful we were for people um kind of dropping off food for us or or, or other things that they did to to help us in some ways and it's amazing how people block those offers of help and that would be a big a big bit of um advice really is that when people are offering to help whether it's to take your child for a few hours or to cook for you or shop for you or do anything for you you just say yes <laughs> you just say yes thank you i know i know people who when they you know, they've just come home from the hospital they've had their baby and people will come around and, and say can i help oh no 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 you're fine now you sit down i'll get you a cup of tea whereas other people have had a list of things and this i, I would fall into this second category a list of things. Yes, please come around. Please help. Here are the list of things to do. Please come and do my laundry, do my cook me a meal, um, take my child for me so I can have a shower. I think there's something about accepting help and feeling part of a village, part of a community, not feeling like this is your solo responsibility to to, to look after your child. I think I think being more more gracious about accepting help and welcoming help knowing that people who are offering help actually want to give help and it, and it, and it actually gives them something fulfilling when they help. That, that is really important, isn't it? You know, a, well, a, identifying who can help or what help you could get and then accessing it. And I think sometimes we are really our own worst enemies and the amount of people I've spoken to, doc, busy doctors I've spoken to, mostly women, I'm going to really try and not be gender biased here, but it does tend to be mostly women who feel guilty about even getting a cleaner Mm. when they are working all hours, God sends when they are picking up their kids, coming back and then working two or three more hours in the evening, they feel guilty because they think they ought to be doing everything at home as well. And it's, I remember getting sort of caught up in that trap and then, you know, eventually looking back thinking what on earth was I thinking? What, why do you think we, 
we put all that pressure on ourselves and, and particularly women? Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great question. Why do we? There's something about identity. So much of what we do, you know, so much of our, so many actions that we take are because we're trying to hold a certain identity. And whether it's something that we think we saw our parents do, or we think we see in society, or we think other people expect, but we have this story then that that's the identity that somehow we're meant to have. Whereas actually, can we use other examples? Can we look at other people? You know, certainly people you know in my life that I can think of where I'm, I'm really, I really respect that they welcome help or that they pay for help, or that they accept help. And by the way, when I say help, I am not referring to partners helping. Partners do not help. This is one of my bugbears. Partners don't get to help because it's not your job to do the things. If if you're in a partnership having children, I strongly believe that it is your shared responsibility. So neither of you actually help the other one, because that would kind of imply that it was one of your job to start with, which we definitely see a lot. Anytime someone says, oh, they've helped me out with the housework or they've helped me out with the childcare. If that's your partner, that's not, that's not helping out. That's their, that's their job. Oh, oh I totally agree. It drives <laughs> me mad <laughs> yeah. when people say, oh, my husband's babysitting tonight. <laughs> yes. No, he's not babysitting. He's looking after the children because they're his children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I mean, where do we get that identity from? Right. I mean, we can look, I'm sure to all kinds of representations in media and films and, and all of that. And I, I hope that our generation and the younger ones, you know, I'm, I'm an older parent, but I am hopeful that younger generations won't do that as much and that we're kind of, we're trying to dissolve that, shed that old story that somehow it was on one of us to do all the, the work and the other one just kind of helps, yeah, helps out. I think that's really, really hard though, because, you know, we think we're very modern women, et cetera, et cetera. But when I grew up, my mum was at home full time. Yeah. She's a very intelligent woman. She's a doctor. She gave up work to look after us and then took 10 years out and then went retrained in ophthalmology and went, went back and did, did that. I'm very, very grateful to her for doing that. My other half, his mother gave up work and never went back to work. So he had a full-time mother, a full-time wife at home, and his dad was a GP. And actually in those days, it was very, very difficult to be a GP if you didn't have a wife mm-hmm. because you couldn't do your own calls because you had to, you'd be out on call and your wife had to stay at home and, and, and take the phone calls from the patients and then the wife would bleep the, um, the husband. And if you didn't have a partner, you had to use a call answering service who would then bleep you and fulfill that, that role. So in a way, yeah. we have grown up with those role models. And you do then see for people, I think a lot of people my age, that the default position, even if you are working in an equal capacity, Mm. the default so obviously goes to the woman. Now, I know I don't want to alienate any of our our listeners, 50% of our listeners, I really, really don't. But I'm just going to give an example of something that happened to me. I, I was on a course locally and I was just chatting with a really good friend of mine and we were having a little bit of a a whinge about uh, the inequality how it felt of genders etc etc and someone a female GP next to me piped up she said oh you know what I've just been listening I just want to share that I'm really lucky we've completely reversed our role so she said I go out to work and my husband is a stay-at-home husband 
And we said, oh, wow, that must be so amazing to get home, to know the children looked after, to know that dinner's there, the laundry's been done, the cleaning, you know, the cleaning's been done. And she said, oh, no, no, he doesn't do any of that. No, I do that at the weekend, but he is amazing at looking after the children. <gasps> we nearly fell off our chairs because I thought, can you imagine a man saying that about his wife, saying, oh, she's amazing. She looks after the kids. I mean, I do all the housework at the weekend, but she is amazing because that's not what society expects. Yeah. Yeah. And even now, when I think about quite a few people that I know, even though they are equal in their employment, the housework and the emotional load and the caring responsibilities are definitely not equal. There is always one default parent. Mm. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. Am I being unfair? Well, well, here's what I find very liberating myself being in a same-sex marriage is that we don't have that default. So it's like we're, we just get to make it up without all that societal baggage and assumptions. So my wife and I, over the, over the years of having, having the children, have just asked those questions of who's better at what, right? I mean, even before we had children, who's better at fixing the car? Who's better at doing the laundry? Who's better at cooking not just better, but who enjoys it more? For, for whom is that more their thing? Who's, who's DIY? Who is, and that's the same with, with, with children, with Toby, you know, so, so I work virtually full-time now and she is virtually full-time with Toby. And that's how we've designed it. Not because one's a man and one's a woman or what, it's because that's just what works for our unique dynamic. And that's what I would love to see with all partnerships if people are in partnerships, that it's not based on gender because that's such it's such a it's such a kind of distracting factor because gender doesn't actually make you better at, at, at these things or make you enjoy things more. I know plenty of men who like cooking more than women and women who like cars or DIY more than men. And it's just what do you, if, if you're sitting down with your partner, what do you enjoy? What are you good at? What do I enjoy? What am I good at? What's your earning capacity? What's mine? What do you love about your work? What do I love about my work? How can we somehow design this so that everyone is playing to their strengths and gender is just irrelevant then? It's really hard though, because these things creep up on you really, really insidiously because yeah. we, we do split the housework very equally now. We've had lots of conversations about that and it, that, that, that is now working. But certainly when the kids were, were a lot smaller, we hadn't talked about it. We hadn't been so intentional as you and Sam had. Mm. And we just sort of fell into those roles. And I guess when yes. one person's at home on maternity leave, that that's just what happens because the other person's going out to work. But then it sometimes feels like it doesn't then change once the person's gone back. Mm. Uh, 
to work. But it's not just about division of labor. It's about the emotional load that you carry. And I, I had a friend who was just getting really annoyed because every week um, her other half would be very happy to go pick the kids up from the sports clubs and take them along. But every week he'd go, right, so what's happening tonight? What times do I need to be there? Mm-hmm. It should be like, why do I have to be the one to tell you what's happening, to hold that load in my head about has it been organised, who's picking up, could you do it or not? And for my mind, not carrying the emotional load means you don't even have to ask. The yeah. other person carries all the arrangements, all the worrying about it, all the thinking in the future about things. Yes. Well, I was working with a client who was a doctor who was talking about that un- unfair division between her and her husband when it came to childcare. And what really helped was her thinking about how she did rotors at work. So it's like at work, we, she was clear that at work, you knew whose role was what and whose responsibility was what, and therefore whose mental load was where. Who was taking that mental leadership, that kind of psychological leadership of a project or a, or a piece of work or a function within a, within a team. And once she saw that, oh, hang on, yeah, I'm doing that at work, then she realized that she could get intentional with her husband. And actually, when drawing up rotors for things like childcare or housework or plans for those things, it, it had on that plan who was in charge of that, not just the, the time of doing it, like you said, like going to collect the child from the sports club, but actually thinking about whatever was related to that because as exactly as you say it's that mental load that that carries that kind of that burden that people then feel they can't escape from but if you realize that you do it in work then you can apply that to home as well oh I love that that's that's a really good tip yeah just apply your leadership skills from work to home and think well I would never treat someone at work like I'm treating (laughs) this person I'd never say you need to pick them up then do you have you remembered to pick them up (laughs) Do you know? Do you know when it is? I'll I'll make sure I tell you every week and remind you. You just trust them to do it, and if they didn't do it, you'd put them into performance management. Yeah, because there'd be right. really natural consequences, wouldn't there, of, of that that would become very apparent, you know, very quickly, and then you would have have to have those conversations. I think you know, you use that word intentional, which is so important, and it's about being intentional. It's about having those conversations, which can be hard when you're very busy working parents. But the time it takes to sit down and have those intentional conversations, and when I sit, say sit down, Sam and I actually do our best talking as we're going out for a walk, you know, maybe we're taking Toby out for a walk in the buggy, best time to have big conversations. You know, having those conversations, not just once, but regularly. So you're regularly checking in. Again, as you would do with, with work, when things change at work. So for example, as the children get older, or you add another child to your family and things change you know, you get to sit down or or go for a walk and have those conversations like Sam and I are having right now about, okay, this current setup for us with me working on my coaching and training practice, her being with Toby, well, what happens when there's another child? Do Do we keep it exactly the same? Or actually, does she not fancy so much having two children virtually full time? And then we need to think about other options. So just keeping that sort of very adult to adult interaction. And as you were saying that, I was just thinking that the drama triangle really comes in here, doesn't it? Because I think we can very much, and I, this is, I'm talking about me here. I won't say we, I'm talking about me. I can, I can feel like a complete victim in all of this. It's like, Mm. why is it always me? Mm. It's, it's not fair. 
they should, they should, they should about all yeah. sorts of different people without yeah. actually taking the responsibility that actually I could ask for what I need. And, yes. and, and then sometimes you'll then scupper things by trying to rescue. So that whole, let's, yeah. let's take example of the friend with the football practice, you know, yeah. don't remind them, yes. <laughs> yeah. you know, just say, is there anything that you need, uh, you know, yeah. anything we can support you with in that role and then actually help them accept the consequences. The, the, the problem is when it's your child and you know that the consequences might be your child you know, forgetting their swimming kit and having to sit on the edge of the pool and not being able to do what they want to do. That's really, really hard to yeah. accept. So you end up then interfering and not letting that other person get on with it or learn from the consequences. And yeah. so you might as well just have done it yourself. And I think I have particularly seen doctors doing this, that you you moan that you've got the emotional load and that you have to do all the, the thinking about kids and everything, but then you don't actually let it go and let, and let other people do it. Well, that's if we dig into the drama triangle there, that rescuer role, it's all about short-term relief. So the rescuer within the drama triangle, so for those who aren't familiar, we've got the villain, the victim, we might call the villain the persecutor, then villain, victim and rescuer. The rescuer is all about short-term relief and short-term being the, the operative word. So that stepping in to, to fix something, it might have that short-term relief where, okay, my child has, has the swimming gear and can go in the swimming pool, but it doesn't actually solve the long-term issue at all. So as you say then, to how do you get out of that role? You go from rescuer to being more coach-like, to actually asking those questions like, how can I support you? What can you do? Um, so that you have longer-term solutions, not short-term. That's quite that is hard to do, but I think it, it's always just bearing in mind we're, we're looking at the the long term uh, consequences here. And I, I always remember this is slightly off piece. It may or may not be relevant, but hearing a oh, it was a parenting seminar, I think, and this guy was saying that he'd gone to dinner with some friends of theirs, and the friends had a fourteen year old boy. Anyway, halfway through dinner, bloke needs to go to the loo. So he gets him to go to the loo. The bathroom's upstairs, so he goes upstairs and has to use the bathroom. Finds the mother in the 14-year-old's bedroom, tidying up, putting all his stuff in the wash bin, just tidying up. And he said, he just went into the room, took one look at her and said, I really pity his future wife. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, yeah. absolutely. Because yeah. if we are always rescuing, taking responsibility for everybody else, taking on the emotional load that we don't want to take, we are not paying attention to the long-term uh, consequences and to the long-term training, because that's what you're, you're trying to do, isn't it? When you're, you're bringing up kids, you're trying to teach them to be adults and make their own way in the world. I mean, one of my, one of my bugbears is when adults spend a lot of time and energy on their kids' homework or nagging them to do it or doing it for them. So I'm like, how is that helpful? A, if they don't do their homework, I want their teacher to have a go at them, not me, because yeah. I want to be a good one going, oh, you poor thing, isn't that teacher awful? <laughs> yeah, they, they need to experience the natural consequences. And then B, if you're always doing it for them, how on earth are they going to cope when they, when they get to university or they're in a job and there's no one else to do it for them? Yeah. And that is the danger of being a rescuer is that it doesn't actually help people. It doesn't, it, you think it gives us short term, short term relief, but it doesn't help you as the rescuer because you then feel often feel resentful that you've oh, you know, I've been so, oh, look at me, I've been clearing up the room or whatever it is you've been doing. 
and it doesn't help the person that you're that you're rescuing. What you're actually doing is is training a kind of a learned helplessness to somebody who doesn't become competent. And there've been, I believe, lots of studies into into resilience and how children benefit from feeling their own sense of competence and independence and self sufficiency and but that builds their mental health more than this learned helplessness would do. Yeah. And I think that is one of the problems of being a professional parent in that you're used to, and also working in healthcare and possibly being a coach as well. <laughs> Karina, I'd be interested in your <laughs> thoughts because you're so used to solving people's problems for them. You know, patient comes in, you, you tell them what to do. Although I would really hope that we're now starting to be a bit more coachy in our approach to that as well. And then, so your kid has a problem you just solve it for them. And because you're quite high achieving, you want your kids to be high achieving, you'll, you'll do anything to make things, you know, to give them the opportunities and to get them to do all of this. And I, I see parents spending their entire lives ferrying their children from this activity to that activity to that activity, enabling their entire life so that the child can be high performing and high achieving, but the child isn't actually learning to make their own way in the world, to find their own way to places, to be a little bit bored, to have to, to do things for themselves. And we have that danger. I think they call it helicopter parenting, that we actually try so hard to fix everything for our children that A, we don't let them solve their own problems, but B, and I've noticed this a bit in my, some of my friends and maybe myself as well, you end up losing your own identity mm. as a human being because it just gets completely subsumed and being a mother or father or parent. And then, then you go to work, which maybe gets a little bit tricky and difficult and work then isn't giving you as much satisfaction. And then you suddenly find what's going on and you have a massive midlife crisis and either buy a Porsche or run off with the gym instructor. I don't know. Or both. <laughs> Sorry, that got a bit bleak. <laughs> Well, actually, what's interesting is that actually as a coach, I don't believe I solve anyone's problems. So I'm very much trusting that they're solving their problems through having the space of coaching to, to hear themselves think and to reflect and to have things pointed out to them. And I think that actually has helped me as a parent. I think, I hope I am quite hands off in the sense that I trust Toby. I mean, he's 21 months, right? So we're very early, <laughs> early days, but I, I do step back and and notice when he let's say he's trying to figure something out and I can step back and I could say something like it, it looks like you're really frustrated right now hmm how I wonder how you might you know I wonder how you might figure out how to put that tractor trailer on there or and so I think I think coaching actually helps me be a less less of a helicopter parent also I've been looking into dipping my toes into the Montessori approaches to, to education, which is very interesting. A lot of that is about observing the child and trusting the child to figure out their own, their own problems. Mm, very good. It'd be quite interesting to see if you still manage to, to coach <laughs> Toby when he's a teenager, because I generally get the response of, stop trying to therapise me, mum. <laughs> <laughs> Come back to me in, what, 13 years or something, and yeah. we, we can explore that one. Yeah, but I think, I think you make a really, really good point. Uh, we haven't got huge amounts of time left, so we've sort of talked about the emotional load. We've talked about being a default parent. We've talked about not rescuing either your partner or your, or your children. What strategies and techniques do you tend to share with people that just makes life a bit easier as a professional working parent? There's definitely something about being, in, being intentional 
knowing what the priorities are, knowing what you're wanting, stepping into what we we share as one of our shapes, the zone of ensuring that I'm always having a, a, someone come back to what is in your power. There will be so many things that aren't, aren't in your power. The fact that your child is sick on a day when you really need to go to work, your nursery won't have them because they're sick. And then that's all out of your control. But when things are out of your control, you have to come back to that question of, okay, well, what, what is in my power? What options do I have? And thinking creatively about, about saying no is always a strategy which seems to come up as being a, a challenging one. You know, saying no, holding boundaries. So, for example, someone who is a working parent who finishes at five or eight or whatever time that workday finishes for them, holding that boundary. And holding it with without apology, without kind of justifying or anything. Just it's just a factual thing. This is when I have to finish because I have to go and pick up my child or be with my child at this point. So it always comes back to being being powerful and not being, as you were saying earlier, you know, not being a victim, not blaming others. What is in my power? What can I do? How can I communicate clearly so that I am staying in my power? I'm pointing out anything which. I want others to know in terms of feedback for them, whether it's a partner, a child, or a colleague. I'm sharing feedback in that way, but I'm always asking, what can I do to make my situation the best it can be? Mm, I love that. And it, it is so powerful just to think, what is it that I can do without being a rescuer and, and overreaching on that? Oh, I can do this for them. I can do this. And, but actually what's in my zone of power here? For me, I think, it really does boil down to the stories that we have in our head and our expectations of ourselves. And a lot of those are hugely ingrained from the way that we were brought up, maybe from the culture in which we're brought up. But I think I would have been spared a lot of grief if I hadn't been telling myself I should be like this as a yes. mother. Yes. I should I should enjoy spending hours mm. baking with my children. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I should enjoy going to the park. I really didn't. I enjoyed doing lots of other stuff with them, but not those particular things. Yeah. And then felt like the, the most dreadful person for it. And if you've got those stories telling you you should do it, you ought to do it, A, you feel dreadful. B, you then force yourself to do stuff that you're probably not very good at. Yeah. And I know that earlier you talked about the when we were just chatting before the podcast about staying in your zone of genius. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so zone of genius, Gay Hendricks is, is an author who talks about this in his book, The Big Leap, which I, I do recommend. He talks about these different zones. We have a zone of incompetence, which is really what we're very much not good at. A zone of competence, which is what we can do. We can do it, but we're just we're just competent. Our zone of excellence, which is where a lot of us get stuck because we are excellent, we're great at something but it actually prevents us from going to our zone of genius, which is where we totally shine and where we absolutely thrive. And so knowing that, if I know that I am someone who does not want to bake with my child, that is not my zone of genius. Maybe it could be my zone of competence, but far better to have that be what an auntie or an uncle or a grandparent does with, with my child when they have, when they have him. And, and it's trusting that actually we can stay in our zone of genius and trust that others will do brilliant work in their zones of genius. And that just makes everything, everyone just feels better. And your zone of genius doesn't feel like work. It feels like just where you're absolutely, your most yourself, your best, best self, the easiest way of being you. Oh, I love that. I love that. I think a lot of people don't actually know what those zones of genius are. So maybe yeah. ask people. Yes, absolutely. And we did this when Toby was, 
was born, or I think maybe when we were pregnant with him, we were asking all our friends, you know, what would you, what would be your great area of strength to do with Toby? And for some people, like friends who love going camping, Sam and I do not like going camping, but I would love for Toby to be exposed to that and have that experience. So great. We know that he can go with those people. They can go on a camping trip and they can go and cook outdoors and all of that wonderful stuff. And we don't have to do that because that's not our area of strength. So surrounding yourself with help and people that can can help as well. I mean, as you've been saying that, I think a, a really good thing would would be to ignore your gender roles. Just yes. try and try and approach it as if you were in a non-gendered partnership. Yes. Yes. Is that the so right good. word? Absolutely, because that's what works for Sam and for me. You know, it's the fact that we are working to our strengths and our interests, our zones of genius. So yeah, throw gender away and just what are you what are you best suited for? Yeah, my other half is so much better at doing the laundry than me. It's 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 unreal. I think yeah. I'm I think I'm better at DIY, but <laughs> perfect. There we there go. We go. What, what has you know what at the end of the day, what what do genitals have to do with laundry and and DIY? They don't. It's just society's assumptions that this is what men and women do, which just we would be so much better off if we were liberated from. Yeah, totally. I'm just I'm just laughing thinking if, if he listened to this, actually, I've I've never drilled a hole in my life, so I'm definitely not big, better at DIY. But he, you know, he's he's much more organized than me. So so for me, organizing children's parties and things like that, definitely not my zone of genius. Yeah. But I have slipped into that role because that's what the mother does. So if we could just come at it with beginner's mind and go, actually, you know, what does this partnership look like? And and let's work to our zone of genius. And for me, it's getting those stories out of the head and getting the guilt away that I should be good at this or I ought to be to be doing that and, and approach it as, you know, the Indian Knight wrote a really good article called What Would a Man Do? So she said mm. every time she comes across something pretty tricky or there's a tricky situation with the, the kids or she's just got me bothered, what would a man do? And then she she thinks of something easy. I think you could also say, what would a woman do? you know and do it that way around as well so you can do what would a man do what would a woman do and what kids what could what what would make this this better without that expectation and 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 try and do that so Karina I know we're really out of time and you you need to go do you have three quick top tips for us well my top tips generally around thriving at work which is what I have been thinking about is to really see that everybody around you is an ally and I think if we bring that to what we've been talking about today to see that, let, let's say neither of you within your partnership have a zone of genius around something, DIY, let's say. Well, where is your ally then? What of your friends? Who of your friends is great at DIY and would love to do that? Or who could you hire who would be great at that? So just seeing that life is supportive and life is friendly and that you have allies, that you're not victims, you're not isolated in that. The second thing is just to catch victimhood. We've been talking about that quite a lot. And take radical responsibility. You know, what can I do? Given the circumstances around me that maybe I can't do anything about, what can I do? And then the third one is around following following our zone of genius. Brilliant. Oh, absolutely brilliant tips there. And I think for me, my the only thing I'd add to that would be approach the the delegation of of, of tasks in the home, which includes all the arrangements and things like you would delegate the rotor at work. Yes. Brilliant, brilliant. Karina, thank you. If people wanted to get a hold of you, find out more about where you work, where could they go? So my website is karinagordonbarnes.com and I'll spell that C-O-R-R-I-N-A-G-O-R-D-O-N and then Barnes, B-A-R-N-E-S. 
and that's dot com. Brilliant. And you, can, and we'll... you can send me a contact message there. I've had people contact me after these podcasts before, which is lovely. So feel free to go to the contact page there and drop me a message. That's wonderful. Karina, thank you so much for being here and best of luck with the imminent arrival of the little one. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now. Bye.